Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Today, I want to take a look. By the way, good to see you. It's a pretty good crowd here today. A lot of people I haven't seen in a while, and uh, something special going on today? What, 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 what am I forgetting? What's everybody doing? No, it's good to see you. Always good to, good to see you. Welcome, those of you who are joining us at home uh, or wherever you are joining us remotely. Uh, can't wait to see you in here with the rest of us. We love you, and welcome Living Word. We're, we're going to look today at the brief account of a man who is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Uh, his name was Jesus, but he was better known as Son of the Father, or as it was known in Aramaic language, Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas was his name. Son of the Father is what Barabbas means. Now, you have to understand, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus this was a common name, fairly common name at the time. And so was Barabbas. That wasn't an uncommon surname. But it's interesting, isn't it, that you had Jesus, the Son of God, the Son, the son of God the Father, and you had Jesus, Son of the Father, Barabbas. And there was a choice to be made that day. Barabbas, according to the Gospels, was a thief a robber, and a murderer. We don't know the details of his particular crime. There, were, there was a, a group back then, we mentioned them last week, or maybe the week before, called the Zealots. These were the Jews who were anticipating, more than just anticipating. They saw the, the very fact that they were under Roman rule as the greatest tragedy in their history, and they knew it wasn't God's will that they live under the thumb of Rome, and so they dedicated their lives to planning the overthrow of Rome. And they would start these little rebellions. And especially at this time in history, we've talked about this many times, that prophecy... Uh, revealed that this was the time frame for Messiah to show up. Those who believed in the actual coming of the Messiah, the, the great deliverer, the, the, the Savior, the capital S Savior that would once and for all free Israel and usher in the kingdom, that he was supposed to be on the scene. And so it was easier at this point in history to get a following. And it does say that Barabbas was involved in one of these insurrections now, whether he was at that time a notorious leader, was he a ringleader, was he one of these who, who, who led the rebellion or did he just participate in it, we don't know. Uh, maybe he was just a particularly vicious participant. Whatever, he had been arrested and sentenced to death because he went so far as to kill someone during one of these little insurrections. And he was known to his contemporaries. It wasn't like he was a complete unknown. I mean, he was infamous in his time. 
but he want, both, neither he nor his crimes were so extraordinary that he would be remembered, except for one thing. I mean, none of us would know who Barabbas was. Even though he was mean and vicious and sentenced to death at that time, he wouldn't have survived 2,000 years of history in our memories except for this. And we'll read Mark's account. In Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 6, we read this. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. We looked at this in a little more detail last week. So I'm not giving you a lot of background here. But, of course, Jesus had been arrested, brought to Pilate. And he's like, I see nothing, nothing wrong with this man. Let me release him to you. No, no, no. So, but there was, a, there was a custom here that somebody could be released, somebody who'd already been sentenced, not just tried. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd, verse 11, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to, said to them again, then what do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now here's what I want you to think about this morning. We tend to think, or I do anyway, about the big picture of the crucifixion. Now, if you've never read a medical description of the crucifixion, what the body goes through, how death occurs in the body of the one being crucified, I challenge you to do that. Uh, I'm going a different direction this morning, and I don't want to do it now at this stage when we've got young children in here anyway. Uh, but it, it's pretty gruesome. It's, it is not a pleasant way to die. And our hearts should indeed ache when we consider that Jesus endured all of that because of his love for sinful humanity. It is a tremendous thing to try to get our heads around, to try to grasp Jesus dying for all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it is such a big picture that we sometimes struggle with seeing the tree, as it were, for the forest. When we think about sinful humanity, the sin of the world, Jesus dying for all of us. But right here in this story, we have Barabbas. Barabbas was freed. He was released. He was pardoned. This is important because there's, there's no reason to think once he was released, he wasn't on the run. In terms of his debt to society, he was free. He, he probably was considered already a folk hero by some of those in Jewish society because of the insurrection. Ah, this is the kind of guy we need to do our dirty work for us. Uh, so it's not like when Pilate released him, he had to split. Did he hang around? 
There was a crowd there to watch the crucifixion. Was Barabbas part of it? Did he stay there and watch Jesus being crucified? Was he able to stand and look and say, that man is literally dying in my place? That was absolutely Barabbas' cross. Again, Barabbas was off the hook as far as his debt to society. But he was still condemned before God, unless at some point he confessed Christ as Lord. But which is worse? Would you rather have the condemnation of man and the approbation of God or vice versa? Would you rather be condemned by God and off the hook with man. There's a wonderful movie, a wonderful scene in a movie that I like. The movie is uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Anybody else a fan? Uh, but the baptism scene, you know what I'm talking about? You've got these three escaped convicts. Uh, they're on the run, and they stumble across a baptism service that's taking place at a, at, at a river, and there's a line of people waiting to get in and uh, Delmar is just overcome with the desire for redemption. And he splashes into the water, rushes to the front of the line to be baptized. And he comes up out of the water and he's boldly claiming, uh, proclaiming his forgiveness. All my sins have been washed away, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over. <laughs> and uh, Clooney's character, Everett, says, I thought you said you were innocent of that particular crime. And he stops and he thinks for a minute. He says, well, I was lying, but I've been forgiven of that too. <laughs> a little bit later, they're having a discussion. This is the part that really, that really kind of grabbed me, where Pete, the other guy who had also gotten baptized, everybody got baptized except Everett. And they were talking about maybe they didn't have to be on the run anymore because uh, he said, uh, the preacher said it absolved us. And Everett says, but not for the law. And Delmar says, but there was witnesses to see us redeemed. There was witnesses seen us redeemed. Everett says, and this is beautiful, even if it did put you square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi is a little more hard-nosed. <laughs> but he was so, it's a, really, it's a, it's a, clever little scene because you really do see the relief and the joy when Delmer comes up out of the water and he just can't understand why this doesn't translate into freedom from man's law. And you can think about this. There are a multitude of testimonies of men and women who are in prison. They're in prison. Some of them are in prison for life. Some of them are on death row. But they have still had a life-changing, life-saving encounter with Jesus Christ. They're still condemned by the state, but they have experienced a very real cleansing, a very real forgiveness from God. Believe me, it is better to be condemned by man and forgiven by God than the other way around. But it is not the mere act of a baptism that gets us forgiven. We have to come to grips with something much, much more difficult. Years ago, 
my wife and I uh, got to attend a youth specialties convention. Remember that? We went there with uh, Ghouls Bay and, and Ben. Where, where was that? In Cincinnati? I think it was in Cincinnati. And uh, there was a speaker there. He was an inner city youth pastor. Huge guy. And he was telling the story of a young uh, gang member who had come to his meeting and had been saved, had given his life to Christ. And he was so thoroughly converted that he knew the next thing he had to do was get out of this gang. But you don't just walk into uh, these street gangs and say, hey, guys, quit. See you around. Come to church sometime. Uh, no, there's a, there a specific way. This, and I don't think this is uncommon, but this particular gang required, if you are going to leave, you have to run this gauntlet or walk this gauntlet. You have to be beat out of this gang, meaning you had to walk through a tunnel of gang members who would punch you, hit you with clubs, hit you with chains, and walk through, and then you're free. And of course, the kid's terrified. And his youth leader said to him, uh, if you want out, you have to do this, but I'll do it with you. And he did. And you better believe that kid loved him for it. They both took the bruises. They both bled. They both took that horrible, beat, horrible beating. But how hard must it have been? I mean, I don't know. To be that youth who wanted out so bad, to look at that youth leader, big as he was, and say, I want you to go through this for me. I want you to do this with me. It's a heck of a thing to ask of somebody, isn't it? And Jesus goes a giant step further. You want out of this life of sin and condemnation before God? Death is the only way. Even your life, though, will not purchase your freedom, so I will go in your place. I won't just go through it with you. I will do it for you. That's the cross. You and I must come to this point to truly appreciate the magnitude. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. This is all about appreciating the magnitude. It's not what Jesus says, but think of it this way. If we're going to appreciate the magnitude of the sacrifice, picture Jesus standing before you. You know he's innocent, he's perfect, he's holy. And you know that you are wretched, sinful, and guilty. But the only way out of your wretchedness, the only pardon available for your death sentence is to ask Jesus to die in your place. He looks at you and says, that's your cross, but I'll go if you want me to. Do you want me to? I'm offering to go to the cross in your place, but you have to ask me to. Can you do it? Because think about it, pride, shame, guilt, who knows what other emotions are fighting with you on this. And then fear enters in and says, but you have to or you're going to die in your sin. It doesn't seem right, but it's the only way. 
This is the magnitude of the crucifixion. He is innocent and stands ready to die if we pronounce the death sentence on him. Like last week, what did they cry? When Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, what did they cry? His blood be on us and our children. We have to be willing to stand and say the same thing. If, if this is the way Jesus puts it, I'm willing to go, Are you, yes, your blood be on me and my children. But this is the love of God. This is the love of God. He didn't frame it that way, did he? Even, though, even those who loved him most, who were closest to him, they didn't understand in that moment what he was doing. They thought he was losing. They thought they were losing. They thought the crucifixion was a horrible injustice. It meant they were wrong about who he was. The multitudes and the Jewish leaders were whipped up into, a, I believe, a demonically inspired uh, level of hate, just wanting to be rid of him. Jesus went to the cross alone. He went to the cross despised to give his life as a ransom for many, and he did it without us asking him to. So when he offers forgiveness, thank God, he doesn't say forgiveness is, forgiveness is yours if you will agree to my being crucified in your place. What does he say? Forgiveness is, is yours if you will receive it because I've already paid the price. You see what a mercy that is? He could make us understand it. He could really drive the point home by confronting each one of us individually and saying, are you going to put me on that cross so that I can forgive you? And we're really stuck because it's the only way we can be forgiven. But maybe something in us won't let us do that to him. But he did it first. While everybody was still hating him, he goes to the cross, then comes and says, I bought this for you. It's finished. It's already paid for. Do you want it? Do you? Sure you do. <laughs> you need it. It's paid for. Now, as far as choosing freedom for the cost of Jesus' life, Barabbas, he didn't have to make that decision either. The crowd made it for him. But again, he was only free in the eyes of the law, the state. He still stood condemned before God. And if he watched it, it had to have been hard to watch. And again, we don't know anything about Barabbas, his family, his life, his crimes. We do not know what happened to him after all this. The only reason we know him is because he was freed by the death of Christ. Except for this intersection of his life with the life of Christ, he would be utterly forgotten. But I suggest this. Not only would Barabbas have been consigned to the dustbin of history, as it were, Jesus would have been too. Jesus, of course, was a great teacher and a notable worker of miracles. So perhaps there would have been some mention of him in ancient texts. Perhaps he would be rem remembered kindly by some historians. But no way would he be even the nominal head of what is the world's dominant religion even today. No way would the calendar be based on the year of his birth. 
No way so many life-enriching institutions would be founded in his name and by his followers down through the ages. And no way would the Bible be the best-selling book in history by far, except for one thing. He rose from the dead. Jesus went to the cross, and if it had ended there, many of us in here probably would have never heard of him. But he rose from the dead. Sometimes life is tough, and there are some people who've had a long haul of toughness in their lives, and their ambition on any given day might go no further than just getting through the day. Some people genuinely struggle with depression because they lack purpose. They find no meaning to attach their lives to. But deep down, we all strive for that. Much as we say, "Ah, I don't care. I just want to feel good. I just want to enjoy life, whatever. Deep down, we all want something more than that. We want our lives to mean something. When we get up in the morning, we want it to be about something. And the more ambitious among us that... Down through history again, Uh, they've built things, they've established things, colleges, hospitals, uh, buildings, even cities, even nations. Others, uh, they can look back over their lives and they just sort of bask in the glory of, I remember when I was the star basketball uh, player. I remember when I was the smartest person in class. I remember when I won a particular race. There's a great quote by Solzhenitsyn that I have shared a few times over the years. It's just about a paragraph where he writes this, and this is, this is from the book, The First Circle. Uh, it has long been known that our life stories do not follow an even course over the years. In every human being's life, there is one period when he manifests himself most fully, feels most profoundly himself, and acts with the deepest effect on himself and on others. And whatever happens from that time on, no matter how outwardly significant, it is all a letdown. We remember, get drunk on, play over and over in many different keys, sing over and over to ourselves that snatch of a song that sounded just once within us. For some, that period comes in childhood, and they stay children all their lives. For others, it comes with first love, and these are the people who spread the myth that love comes only once. Those for whom it was the period of their greatest wealth, honor, or power will still in old age be mumbling with toothless gums of their lost grandeur. What people are really seeking without calling it that is immortality. They want to be remembered. Woody Allen, somebody threw a suggestion at him that he was becoming such a well-known and accomplished and respected movie maker that he was being immortalized. And his response, many of you have heard this, is I don't want to achieve immorality, sorry, immortality by my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. He said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my fellow men. I want to live on in my apartment. 
Jesus promised his disciples that they would live again. In John 11, uh, John chapter 11, verse 23, beginning in verse 23, this is when he goes, uh, you know, Lazarus has died. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? While Jesus was on the earth, those who walked with him, who followed him, were living the best life they had known because they were with Jesus. And they were looking forward to reigning with him when he established the kingdom in Jerusalem. So when he died, their dreams died. It was back to meaninglessness. And then in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. <laughs> his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go into Galilee, and there they will see me. Praise the worship team. You can be coming up here. Jesus promised his disciples, his hearers, eternal life. But fulfilling that promise hinged on fulfilling another one. In John 14, 19, Jesus said, Because I live, you also shall live. When Jesus rose from the dead, he ratified that promise. He fulfilled, he confirmed every other claim and every other promise he made. He says, I didn't just die in your place to save you from hell. I didn't pay your debt just for you to escape condemnation. I rose from the dead to give you new life. Heaven is going to be glorious. The general resurrection is going to be an amazing day. But the new life he offers you, you can have right now. That's what the resurrection is about. I rose from the dead to offer you new life, Jesus says. The question is, do you want it? It's already been paid for, and he has already risen from the dead. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. I don't know if that happened to Barabbas. I hope that his name, Jesus, Son of the Father, gives us a clue to his ultimate fate, but we just don't know. You just need to see that as Jesus died in the place of Barabbas as an individual, he also died in your place, in my place. And yes, in the place of this world. If only we will say yes, Lord, I believe. Stand up with me for just a moment. The Jesus we read about in these scriptures, the Jesus who died on the cross, the Jesus who met the Marys on their way from the tomb, is the very same Jesus who saves today, who offers eternal life today, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, who still stands before us and says, do you want to be saved? I rose from the dead, and it is this resurrection life, this new life that I offer you. Do you want it? Is there anybody here today who says, yes, I want it, I need it. Today, I desire to be saved. I know that Jesus died, and now I see that, yes, he died for the world, but he died for me, for my sins, and I need to confess him as Lord and Savior today, Lord. I need to be saved. Anybody, just by a show of hands, yes, Lord, I need to be saved today. I desire to be born again. I need that new life, that eternal life. Anybody, do not be shy. This is life we are talking about. This is ultimately heaven and hell we're talking about. You think of the shame that Jesus endured to make this offer. Don't be ashamed to raise your hand if you've not made this decision before. I'm not seeing any hands. And I hope that believes that every, I hope that means that everybody in here is a believer, has already made that decision. If you haven't, and for some reason you couldn't bring yourself to say, I need that today, see me before you leave. Maybe you've got one more question that needs, needs answered. Be glad to pray with you, speak with you. Let me pray before you sit down. Heavenly Father, thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blood that was shed, the life that was given in my place to pay my sin debt. And thank you, Lord, for raising Jesus from the dead, for, for fulfilling that promise and putting your stamp of confirmation on every other promise. Thank you that because he lives, we will live too. And I pray now that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, Lord God, does not know Jesus as Savior, that you will, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to them and reveal their need for you to them. In Jesus' name, amen. One last time before we sit down, does anybody need to be saved this morning? Praise the Lord. You can be seated. And remain in an attitude of worship as we prepare to receive from the Lord's table. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, we did a sermon. By the way, does anybody desire to take communion today and you didn't get the elements? Raise your hand. The ushers will make sure uh, those are delivered to you. Looks like we're all right. We did a sermon on communion a few weeks ago, uh, a whole sermon, and this is such a rich ordinance, even a sacrament, that we can look at forgiveness, healing, unity, sacrifice, and many other things that are central to the life of a believer, and we can look at all those things through the lens of the Lord's Supper because it's relevant to all of it. But my favorite point to make when taking communion is this. We do this in remembrance of him. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we must remember that he did indeed die. This is my body reminds us that it was a bodily death he died. When, and, and that means it was a bodily resurrection uh, that, that, that happened. When people, people say, it's, it's been a great point. You know, he, couldn't, he could have just said, well, I'll, I'll rise spiritually. And nobody could have challenged it. No, but the claim was that he would rise bodily from the dead. And he includes the body in the Lord's Supper for that reason. We must remember that he did indeed die. He died in our place. And he died without us asking him to, to make it easy to accept that payment. But by far, the most significant thing about the death of Jesus Christ, the most important thing to remember as we do this in remembrance of him is what? That he didn't stay dead. We proclaim not just death. We proclaim his death, which was different from every other death, death because he didn't stay dead. And that means we can believe him when he says, you won't stay dead either. Even though you die, you will live. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's take the bread. Heavenly Father, thank you for the broken body of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the clear evidence of Scripture and the testimony down through the ages that he took in his body those stripes, that scourging, that beating for me and my physical restoration and our restoration as your body. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing those blows to fall on your back, for going through in your body what needed to happen so my body could be healed, so my soul could be saved. Thank you, Father, for the bread in Jesus' name. Take the cup. We thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and spilling your blood and giving your life in my place. The blood that saves me, the blood that washes me clean, that removes the stain of sin and rescues me from the condemnation and the judgment that I deserved. Thank you for taking that judgment in your own body. Thank you for purchasing my freedom 
my forgiveness, my pardon with your blood. Thank you for the cup in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's uh, continue to worship the Lord with our giving. If uh, you need an envelope, maybe you brought cash this morning and you need an envelope, make sure you get the proper tax credit or whatever. Uh, if you didn't grab an envelope on the way in, again, wave until an usher sees you. Uh, if you're writing a check out, make that out to Living Word Family Church or simply LWFC. And I know, again, as always, that I think the majority of you have uh, gotten in the habit of dropping that uh, your tithe or your offering in the bucket on your way in here. That's fine. Uh, but if you haven't, don't forget to uh, deposit it in the appropriate receptacle as you exit. But meanwhile, thank you, as always, for your faithfulness in giving. It, uh, it is a blessing to me. It is a blessing to one another. I know it is a blessing to God because he delights in our obedience. It says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And uh, I'm just, uh, it's a privilege to be part of a congregation that takes obedience to, the, to what God says about the tithe, seriously. It's a privilege to be a part of a congregation that believes so strongly in giving and being a blessing and supporting ministers that we've made a commitment to. Uh, I'm so glad that our missionaries have never had to worry about our continued faithful support over the years and over this last year in particular. But... Uh, this is something that we can celebrate as a congregation, but it's also something you need to understand. There's an individual uh, concern here as well. Uh, the, the, the Bible, Old Testament and New, make it very clear that, God, that this is an expectation, this is a requirement that those who receive spiritual nourishment are to uh, pay that, uh, that, that. A tithe isn't something you give, you understand. A tithe is something that's paid. Uh, that this is something that God expects you to tithe, whether you look at it in the Old Testament legal sense or in the New Testament, you know, as, uh, as, as the Lord leads. Uh, the Lord never led anybody to give nothing, you know. Uh, Jesus praised the widow, gave, uh, gave her, last, her, her last few pennies. Well, why? You just keep that. There's richer people in here to pay the bills, lady. Here, sister. Uh, no, no, no. He says this. She's blessed because she gave. God loves a cheerful giver, and what does he do? Even from the legal standpoint, the Old Testament, you remember the mean old Old Testament? He says, bring the tithe into the storehouse and test me now in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain. And what does he say in the New Testament? Give, and it shall be given unto you. With the same measure that you give, it will be measured back. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Uh, praise the Lord. It's just it's one more way we worship him. And we want to thank God for his abundant provision, and this is just our way of acknowledging that. Heavenly Father, thank you again for everything that's, that's, uh, that you have done in our midst today, every way you've spoken to us, every way you've changed us. Help those, the words that we've read and heard from you today take root in our heart, germinate, grow, and bear fruit in our lives for the benefit of others and, and for our personal growth as well. Thank you now for the opportunity, as always, to give into, the, into your kingdom, into the work of the kingdom. Thank you for the uh, privilege we have of being partnered with so many excellent ministries around the world. 
And thank you for Living Word Family Church. We believe that Living Word is good ground. As we sow this seed today, we believe it's going to bear fruit in our community, in our world, and in our lives too. For our benefit, yes, Lord, but ultimately to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. Go ahead and stand up and let's go out singing. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.